Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Hey there, and thank you for joining me on The Moment again, where each week present one hour of a really cool conversation with a really interesting guest about moments in their life. A couple of weeks ago, I had on Doobie brother Tom Johnston, and he and I spent, I thought, a very uh, interesting hour talking about about the band, about his life. Today, we've got his uh, his musical soul brother, Pat Simmons. You know, these guys, these two guys uh, really the founding members of the Doobie Brothers, you know, that are still out there, still taking this band all around the world. And what I love about talking to both of these guys separately is that even though they've been in this band for decades, their approach, how they got involved, what their lives were like before, during, and after are, of course, still uh, very unique and very different. So we heard Tom's take on everything. I was really thrilled to have my friend Pat Simmons on to chat with me recently. We have a very expansive, very full hour here. We're going to get right to it with a little break in the middle, but I really hope you enjoy this. Uh, Pat Simmons is one of the most just thoughtful, interesting, really uh, really eloquent men, one of the sort of quiet voices of rock and roll, but listen closely. He's got a lot to say. Super fond of this guy. I hope you enjoy this. I'm Chris Septing. This is The Moment, and here's my conversation with Pat Simmons from the Doobie Brothers. Pat, thank you for joining me today on The Moment. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be with you. So, Pat, you know, you and I in the past have, have talked about certain moments in your life. I know there are certain ones that resonate from you, and I'd love to hear about them. I want to start you off with one, though, because there was a night back in the late 60s when you went to a very famous venue in San Francisco, um, and you, you bumped into somebody inside. You know, I think you know what I'm talking about. I think it was Winterland, right? Um, oh, when I... I um Met Jimi Hendrix, huh? Yeah, that to me seemed like a pretty important moment for a, an up-and-coming guitar player in college to bump into Hendrix. What do you remember about that night? Well, it was inspiring, of course. Um, I had never seen uh, Jimmy play before, but I really loved uh, the records. And, um, you know, I was probably my, I think my first year of college there, so it must have been about 66. Seven, uh, the fall of '67, and uh, well, with a bunch of my friends up there, and um, we decided to take some psychedelics just to enhance the the evening, of course. <laughs> but um, anyway, got there, went inside, and uh, uh, you know there were all kinds of people there to see Hendrix. Um, I bumped into Yorma Kaukonen uh, from the Jefferson Airplane, who had was a friend of mine at the time, and um, briefly spoke with him. That was pretty cool. I, I would often um, bump into Yorma when I was up in the city going to the venues because he was living up there at that time and always hanging out. And um, I saw... Mike Bloomfield walking around, and I love Mike Bloomfield. And uh, I was with a friend of mine, and we, we, um, I kind of poked him and said, "Hey, there's Mike Bloomfield. Let's let's go close 
so I can look at them, you know. <laughs> one of them, really one of those. I didn't want to get too shy to talk to him, but um, I just, you know, it's amazing to just see him there. So um, just about that time we started walking over, he turned around and walked uh, another direction with, uh, I think he was with Buddy Miles at the time, and, oh, and so uh, I followed him, and uh, he, he went back, behind this sort of a curtain which was uh, on the edge of the dressing room and went in the door and I went, ah, shucks, he's, he's gone, you know, but there are all kinds of people. Jack Cassidy was walking around, Grace Slick, um, uh, gosh, uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company, all those with Janis Joplin, and she was playing, she was opening for Hendrix and so they were all kind of walking around outside the dressing room, and we were just kind of standing there ogling all the stars. And uh, I was pretty pretty high, pretty stoned uh, with my buddy, and all of a sudden I feel this nudge in my uh, shoulder, and I turn around, and this guy hands me a, a joint and says, hey, you want to smoke something? And so I took it, and I took a hit and passed it to my buddy and then I took another look at the guy and, and it was Jimi Hendrix and I didn't, uh, you know, I was so whacked I just didn't realize it was him at first and uh, so I go, wow, you're Jimi Hendrix and he said, yeah and so we started talking and yakking and, and uh, uh, he was just really nice and, and uh, my buddy says, yeah, you know, he plays the guitar, too. And Jimmy says, oh, yeah, you play? I go, ah, you know, not not like you. And, you know, you're the greatest, you know. And he goes, ah, no, you know, it's good you play. And my friend said, yeah, he's really good. He's he's going to be playing here one of these days. And and um, Hendrix goes, oh, yeah, when, when are you going to be playing here? I go, no, he's... He's uh, he's full of it, you know. I'm not going to be playing here. I just, you know, I play little clubs and stuff. And he goes, oh well, you know, maybe you will one of these days. And so we talked for a while and smoked and and just chatted. And he was just such a nice guy. And he goes, well, I got to go. I got to get ready to play. And so he took off. And and that was kind of my my moment, you know, with Jimi Hendrix. But it was, uh, you know, a great moment just to. See such a uh, fabulous musician, so down to earth and and friendly, and you know, thought, thoughtful towards other people and stuff. I, I felt like I I learned something, you know, and and a lot of the the best musicians are are the humblest people. It's surprising, you know. So you know that that kind of take that to heart myself. You know, that's the way to be with people. Well, what's funny is you you did you would be playing there probably. Three or four years later, right? I think I think on the uh, Mother Earth uh, well, uh, Doobies tour, seven. So uh, we we ended up playing there. I think in seventy one or right. two, something like that. So it was a while, you know, four or five years later. Yeah, but you did it. Hendrix was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he knew. He 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 knew that uh, what it you know, what it was all about, and if you really wanted to do something, uh, if you really loved something, that, you know, it would, would come to you. And really, I wasn't visualizing actually playing there at all at the time or ever, but, uh, you know, 
just uh, ironic that we ended up gigging there quite a bit later on, later years. I mean, growing up at least near the Bay Area, you, you, you had an opportunity to see a lot of bands like that. You also saw the Grateful Dead one night, too, right? Kind of early in the day. Um, as, as a, as a, as yeah, fir- first time I ever went to the Fillmore, the Dead was, uh, they were actually on stage playing, uh, and uh, I really didn't know anything about the Grateful Dead. It was before they had uh, an album uh, released. I had heard of them, of course, and really, really in conjunction with uh, Ken Kesey's acid tests, as they would be, you know, living in San Jose, um, Kesey actually was everywhere in the Bay Area doing these acid tests. Basically, there were parties. You know, somebody would call and say, hey, Ken, come on over and and um, bring your crew and let's have a party. We have it at my house and, you know, we'll print up some posters. And, you know, the, there was a charge, you know, a, a dollar or something to get in, you know, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, but a dollar in those days was like, like paying $10 now, you know, for something. Um, but anyway, you know, we, I would see them all over town and, uh, the dead was, uh, you know, uh, the band really, that was always, uh, always there. Um, they were part of that, that scene, part of the acid test thing. But anyway, I saw they were at the Fillmore when I went there and, uh, pro- the first time actually that I'd ever taken a psychedelic, uh, went to the Fillmore and the dead was, was playing and. They were just, you know, the the wackiest band I had ever seen. You know, what <laughs> really the what, what makes you say that? Uh, the look of them. You know, they were so such uh, strange, kind of strange. I won't say strange looking guys, but for you know, the bands in those days, everybody was trying to be. You know, uh, it was the British invasion or prior to that time, and everybody had cool hair and. And uh, and and you know fan, fancy suits and stuff. And uh, the Dead were like, you know, Pigpen. He was dressed like a biker, and uh, Jerry was like, I don't know, some kind of you know, embroidered home embroidered uh, vest, and his hair was you know really curly. He had really curly hair, so he had, his, and and he combed it like down, you know, so that it kind of, it triangulated out of his head, you know, and then Phil Lesh was just, you know, Phil, he's like tall and skinny and uh, really angular looking guy, and then uh, Bob was really just this young kid that was, you know, he was the one that was sort of groomed and uh, and more British invasion style, the way he was dressed and right, stuff. Right, right. So it was kind of an odd, they were an odd band, you know, odd, odd uh, conglomeration of people that were playing together. It's like they didn't really fit, you know, v- visually to me at the time. Uh, but they were, you know, really good, and, and it was cool. You know, really in those days, they were more of a blues band. Right. <clears throat> so... You know, they would jam and everything, but it was much more of a, a blues kind of stuff. And Pigpen was kind of the forefront of the band. You know, he had a, played a Farfisa organ, which was an, another odd kind of a sound for this more organic-sounding band. 
they had that little that funny uh, ninety six tears kind of sounding organ yeah, going organ, on. Right, right. Red, red, red Farfisa. <laughs> but I enjoyed the hell out of it. You know, they were great. Had another moment, I think, happens when um, you're playing at a place in Campbell, I believe. The, the night, now this, again, this is where you, you're out of school now, and it's the night that you and Tom uh, Tom Johnson first meet, right? I think it's the first night you meet, where he's playing there, I believe, yeah. with uh, Skip Spence. You're playing there on the same bill at a small theater in Campbell, California. And that's sort of, that's a moment for you, I would guess, right? The night you guys first connect there? It was uh, <clears throat> kind of interesting because... Skip sort of always had conglomerations of different players playing with him, and he was supposed to be playing this gig with uh, this guy Bill Andres, Billy Dean Andres, who was a great guitar player. And uh, from what I understand, I think Bill was in jail. He was he had been drafted in the to the military and to the army, and he was always AWOL. He never did go in. You know, they drafted him, and then he would just walk away. But they would find him and arrest him, you know, so he would end up in jail for a while, and, <laughs> and they gave up, and that was the end of that. But anyhow, Bill was supposed to be playing, and I think he was in jail. So here's Skip with these other guys, and it was Tommy and Tom Johnston and uh, John Hartman and uh, a bass player. I can't remember the bass player's name, but... Uh, Right. Anyway, some other bass player, and uh, <clears throat> so myself and a guy named Peter Grant um, opened the show. We played, uh, oh, we played about an hour, I guess, the two of us. Just kind of, we had a kind of a bluegrass, folky, folk blues, bluegrass thing going on. And uh, then, then Tommy played with Skip, and uh, it was mostly Tommy's songs, I think, because he was singing everything. Skip was playing, but sort of loosely, but Tom was really carrying it, and uh, he and John sort of had this kind of heavy, uh, not heavy metal, but more of a, like a, like, like a trio sort of a, a cream style uh, thing going on. And I thought they were really good. I especially thought Tom was just, you know, a great singer. And uh, I could tell it was kind of a jam, but, um, you know, Tommy played his ass off and, and sang really great. And uh, John just had the great energy. And uh, so I, I knew Skip, and uh, when they were finished, I, I went back and to say hi to Skip. And I was talking to him. He said, oh, I want you to meet uh, the guys I'm playing with, and he introduced me to, to Tom and John, and uh, and I told them how much I enjoyed, uh, you know, what they were doing, and and they both said, yeah, well, we really like, you know, what you guys were doing, too. That was really great, and you should come by the house sometime and hang out and and uh, love to, to jam with you or something if it's, you know, in, in, in the flow. So um, I would say, you know, not more than a week later, I... Uh, I think John showed up at my house, maybe, in San Jose. I had given him my address. We exchanged each other's, you know, addresses and uh, and said, come on, why don't you come on over? And so I grabbed my guitar and I went over. And, and we just sat around and played for a couple of hours, you know, just sitting out in the backyard, Tommy and I jamming and, and John playing uh, 
congas or something, and uh, and we just really enjoyed, you know, each other and the and you know in the music, um, and that was kind of the beginning of a of a lifelong friendship. Yeah, that's a real moment. I mean, again, it's it's funny how Skip Spence figures into your guys' lives. I mean, for people, I just think who are unaware of you know what he was doing then. Um, you know, kind of during an after Moby Grape up in the San Jose area. He was a real character who really was a magnet. I mean, a real force in nature from the way you guys talk about him and just how, how charismatic he was and how people just, you know, gravitated around him. And I think, you know, a lot of good and crazy things happened in his presence, including you guys meeting that night. Skip was a very talented guy. Um, he, he emotionally... Um, he had some real issues, anxiety, and uh, oh gosh, I think he, he had a bout with you know schizophrenia, yeah. and uh, he was supposed to be on medication, but he always abused his medication, and and really was self medicated most of the time, um, doing every every drug he could get his hands on for a while, which contributed to his his. Uh, you know, triggered triggered every bad um, emotional issues that he had. You know, were triggered by all all the different substances that he was doing, and uh, he he just got worse and worse. And uh, finally, uh, I think he his wife probably committed him. Those are the days when uh, there were places for. Yeah people to go to, to dry out and there were, you know, uh, psychological help uh, with, you know, counseling and medication and so on for people um, that was free of charge. You could just go in and, and get taken care of. It's sort of, I don't know what happened. It went by the wayside and uh, with, you know, the insurance companies sort of controlling them, that industry, but... Um, um, but Skip got very, very ill, uh, and eventually, uh, I think he he kind of ended up homeless for a while, and then uh, became a, a, a ward of the state, kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, the, he received some kind of. Uh, not a pension, but a you know some kind of aid, and he was able to sort of exist. And, but he lived basically lived on the street for a long time. He didn't really have uh, a lot of support. His friends tried to help him, but um, it was very difficult just because he was uh, again, like I say, he was such an abuser of uh, sub substance abuser that uh, that was rough. But man, if you listen to the, uh, for anybody that hasn't heard that Moby Grape record, when you listen to the music you guys eventually make, the blending of acoustic and electric, and the, just stylistically, it really seems like you guys were very influenced by by Moby Grape. I mean, it's, uh, you know, again, for, for people that understand why that band is so good, I think they get it. But for those that don't, I think it's worth a listen, because what you, what you and Tom end up soon you know building soon after all of this really seems to have its roots in that kind of experimental really adventurous blending of, of different american styles like they did i think you know we our band was kind of born in an era um 
that was, you know, hard, hard rocking, um, but at the same time melodic, you know, and we really, uh, speaking for myself, and I think, and I can speak for Tom in this too, we valued the, the melodic uh, elements that, that we were able to, to uh, incorporate into our music. Um, you know, and I, I can say at the time, you know, there were bands, uh, well, for me, uh, I, I admired ev- many of the San Francisco bands, of course. Um, but I, I loved the Airplane. I loved the Grape. All, all those bands were really into, uh, you know, harmonizing and in, really interesting sort of intricate vocal arrangements. Um, the Beatles, of course, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash uh, were, you know, kind of coming into their own then. Um, I love the Buffalo Springfield. I love the Birds. Bands of that nature that uh, were really kind of born out of the, the folk blues uh, thing, but at the same time, um, there was a, a certain kind of a country element to, to them. Uh, I listened to a lot of bluegrass. Uh, again, those kind of harmonies uh, that... Uh, oh, you know the Dillards and the, uh, I don't know. I can't even think at this point. But you know, a lot, a lot of bands anyway were uh, influencing m- me personally. Um, so you know, we we always thought that was important uh, and, and and enjoyable. You know, to be honest with you, it wasn't just that it was like, oh well, we have to do this. It was just as we would put together songs and come up with vocal arrangements, it was so satisfying, you know, to to my ear and to my soul uh, to create those kinds of arrangements. I just loved it to death. And like you say, the Moby Grape was one of those bands, um, probably of all the San Francisco bands, I, we've, I, I personally felt the most kinship uh, with that particular band and, Probably Tom did too, I, I would think. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Pat, once you and Tom get into it, and you, you know, you, it be, sort of it becomes a band, you're, you're hanging out at the famous uh, or infamous 12th Street house in San Jose, which becomes sort of ground zero um, for the Doobie Brothers. You know, it comes time for that. I guess it's the first show up at the, the Chateau Liberté famed biker club up in the Santa Cruz Mountains there. What are you thinking at that point? I mean, you're, you're watching this band kind of come together. It's before you get a record contract. But did you did you think there was a a future here with, with this kind of the original setup? How did it feel back then as things started to gel? Well, prior to um, bands playing up there, uh, it had all been acoustic music. And uh, I got a gig there playing... Um, Myself, I played by myself at one point, and then I came back and I played a gig with uh, Tyran Porter, who later sure. became the bass player for the Doobies. Um, and Tyran, myself, and a and a violin player, and so we kind of, you know, really were playing acoustic music in those days, and that's all they wanted up there. They didn't have, uh, they didn't want the bands. Playing because they, at that time, the guy, um, 
uh, he he was not uh, a fan of of loud you know rock music. So it was all acoustic. Uh, the the guy that that was running it at that time, and <clears throat> so then as I played there a few times uh, with Tyran and uh, Mike Mendel was a violin player at that time. Playing, I was playing with, and and at some point. Um, they started having rock bands, and they still brought me in to play, and I, so I would play, and then the band would go on. And it was kind of, uh, it was harder, as, as, as they started bringing in uh, bands, it was harder and harder for me to, to get up there and play because everybody was, you know, wanting to hear, wanting to rock, right? So um, I would play, and it would kind of get, you know, I would have get an okay reception, but when the band came on, it was like, yeah, it was, the people would start going crazy. So I always, you know, was uh, sort of uh, uh, envious of of the guys that that had bands. So that when we got hired, I got hired, uh, or actually, um, Tom and John, and uh, at that point, it was. Uh, Dave Shogren was the bass player. Right. Dave uh, was. I, I went to high school with Dave, and for some somehow they they hooked up with Dave, and then uh, they had the gig coming up there, and they said uh, we got a gig at the Chateau, which sure we don't really have enough material. Would you think about coming and, and playing with us and doing some of your songs, and then you know we could fill in the holes and and have enough to to do an entire evening so I said of course and that would be great so that was kind of our first outing I think we had played one gig together um, around the, the the college San Jose State um, at the student union or something but um, <clears throat> so this was our first real professional gig and uh, so I was you know, looking forward to it. So that was kind of, I was excited about the aspect of actually going back to the Chateau with the band, you know, plugging in and playing rock <laughs> at the place uh, that, that I had always struggled in. That's a big shift right there. Pat, we're going to take a quick break. We have a commercial, but we will be right back. My name is Chris Epping. You are listening to The Moment with my special guest, Pat Simmons from the Doobie Brothers. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. 
Hi there, Chris Septon here on The Moment, and we are rejoining my conversation with the great Pat Simmons from the Doobie Brothers. He's got some really amazing stories and moments coming up here. I hope you enjoy this, and I'll see you at the end of the interview. You were talking before the break about that probably, if, if not the first, one of the first shows up at the Chateau Liberté up in the mountains uh, with the Doobie Brothers and how good it felt to go in there and plug in with the band. Soon after that, the first album comes out on Warner Brothers. It does okay. You guys get your first taste of going on the road, right? You go out with Mother Earth and uh, you get to really do your first tour in earnest, right? Right. That was the uh, first time we ever, well, really the first time I'd ever, you know, been away from home for a long time, you know. And you go out and you, you tour and you start to learn what that's all about. Come back home, do an album called Toulouse Street, which uh, does, you know, has a couple of soon-to-be hits on there, which kind of established, begins to establish a sound. I think it's really on the third album. Um, I mean, again, you've got, got great stuff on Toulouse Street, but I think on Captain and Me, it's we, we really first get to hear... Um, I think what makes the band the sound so special, what you bring to it, songs like South City Midnight, I mean, the, these are become standards in the Doobie's repertoire, but uh, I think they also were a great counterpoint to what Tom was doing, which is a little bit harder. You're bringing in the picking, the bluegrass, and again, it kind of goes back to Moby Grape a little bit, that blending of styles. But uh, you were really, you were really beginning to distinguish yourself there uh, as a, as not just a primary songwriter, but crafting the sound of the band. That had it feel good at that time. We were uh, experimenting a lot more. Um, I, I think that album, um, the Captain and Me, was the first time we had ever used a synthesizer, and it was, uh, you know, before synthesizers were really. You couldn't just go into a store and buy a synthesizer. Um, you know, they were sort of crafted by various um, makers, and you kind of you had to order them and specify <clears throat> kind of what you you know what you were trying to accomplish. And uh, <clears throat> there were only a few um, people that really uh, had had employed them much, Stevie Wonder being the, the main guy who sort of brought them onto the scene in pop music uh, with, uh, I think it was The Secret Life of Plants, and uh, there was another... Uh, I think even back on, like, Inner Visions, kind of earlier, too, he was doing some right. things. Right, and so um, we, we, we found out who Stevie Wonder was using. It was uh, Bob Margulov and uh, Cecil... Malcolm Cecil. Uh, Malcolm was the player, and, and Bob was kind of the technician. They worked together uh, to craft, you know, these different uh, waveforms that you could get by by using a patch bay, and you could create these sounds. And they sort of knew what the sounds were going to be when they. Uh, patched in, but then you you could alter those sounds ever so slightly by turning a few different dials and switches and plugging across uh, different uh, networks uh, of uh, inner inner patch bays and stuff. So it was really kind of cool for us. I think we used uh, on South City Midnight Lady... um, there's a, a synth on that. 
Um, we used it on uh, Natural Thing. And uh, one other song, I, I think uh, Ukiah has some kind of horn parts that are the synthesizer. Um, but anyhow, it was, you know, really an experimental time for us. Uh, now it seems, you know, pretty pretty rudimentary, but back then it was, you know, kind of mind-blowing that we were able to, you know, stumble on these various sounds and and uh, just experiment to see how they worked in, in the song. So that was really fun. Um, you know, we had uh, brought in horn players to play on various songs. Um, Bill Payne from Little Feet uh, was playing keyboards uh, for us on uh, a good many of our records back then. Um, pretty much starting at with Toulouse Street, uh, Bill came in and, and we were just knocked out. We didn't really know what to expect when he came <laughs> in. He was, Eddie, Ted Templeman, the producer, had suggested we, we try him out, and uh, he kind of just blew us away uh, with you know how great uh, he played. So that was just a great moment for us there as well. But all those things were you know, just eye-opening for us in terms of... And, and Ted was so great to allow us that, that freedom to, to uh, you know, to experiment. And, you know, Ted was a, a real... Uh, admired uh, George Martin so much, and I, I think that that was a huge influence in terms of the, the approach that, that he was taking with our records uh, and letting us try a lot of different things. And, you know, again, with uh, various styles of, of guitar, um, you know, banjo, I played banjo on tracks. Uh, I played uh, uh, a Nashville tuning guitar on a few tracks, which was, you know, the high strings from a 12-string guitar, stringing your guitar with, so it kind of had a mandolin sort of a sound to it. Uh, just a lot of really unique uh, moments for us that we, you know, were allowed to to try just because Ted was really a very open guy. So, and we, but we just had a lot of fun, really, which was is what it's all about, anyway. I would say too, when you mentioned like the banjo, there are so many subtle touches on even the biggest records when you listen to listen to the music and you realize that the banjo there is doing so much and adds such once you know it's there it's such a compelling unexpected texture and i think with a lot of doobie brothers records that the closer you listen and the more you listen the more is revealed that and and, and obviously part of that is ted as a producer but also your guys abilities as players just allowed for some really creative um you know, crossing over and blending of things that a lot of bands just didn't have the ability to do. We, uh, <clears throat> Tom and I had such different styles. He was, he was, a uh, you know, kind of a, a R&B soul, soulful kind of player, um, very rhythmical in his patterns. And then I was, a you know, a, a finger picker, um, you know, a folk blues kind of guy a little bit of bluegrass influence, and together we came up with that kind of neat counterpoint uh, stuff that we were doing, 
And then John Hartman, a lot of people don't realize it, but John was very, um, re- very talented in terms of ideas and production and um, various uh, percussive devices, you know, that, that he employed in, in a lot of the tunes, you know, everything from kettle drums to, to congas, you know, um, just really had a lot of great ideas. So um, we just had a ball together coming up with, you know, trying stuff, and it was just, and it worked. That was the neat thing. In 90% of the time, we'd try something, and we'd go, yeah, that that did that did what we were thinking it would do. That's great, you know. We didn't always use them throughout the whole tune, but there might be a, a segment in the tune where, you know, it would turn a corner and something else would be happening, and it, you know, allowed the tunes to sort of breathe and have some depth, as opposed to you know being, you know, all all one plane of of sound. You know, we'd it would different things would come in and out and. Uh, really, really, Ted was a great producer as well. I was going to say, and Ted, you know, he heard you noodling one day on something which he liked, and, and you he encouraged you to develop, and you're down in New Orleans, and lo and behold, Black Water is born shortly after that. I mean, his instincts were good. When he heard a little something, he, it sounds like he knew when to push and when to encourage you to, uh, you know, to keep working on it, and then you get a song like that that, uh, you know, were it not for him encouraging you, who knows how different it might have been. Yeah, Ted was always, uh, his, had such great ears, and, uh, you know, he could bring something in, in that was just a, a, a sketch of an idea, and he would sort of give you, you know, references of things to listen to. Go listen to, you know, Curtis Mayfield or, you know, some, you know, some James Brown tune or something, and it would give you ideas about how to develop your, your tunes further. Uh, on Blackwater, I just, I had that opening riff, and he heard it and and asked me what it was, and I said, well, that's just something I've been, you know, playing, you know, fooling around with. He goes, oh, you should write a song using that, and I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. <laughs> just got to come up with something, <laughs> and uh, eventually we were down in New Orleans uh, doing some shows. We were staying in the quarter and kind of driving around uh, the area and playing little towns outside New Orleans, clubs and stuff. And uh, I was going up to uh, do my laundry up in uh, up uptown, they call it there, up Canal Street, uh, St. Charles, actually. There's a, uh, a streetcar that goes up to the college up there and... Uh, I was going up there. Somebody told me, yeah, there's a, a laundromat up there. So I got on the streetcar and and was taking the streetcar uptown and, and was jot, jotting down ideas. It was raining and stuff. And uh, if it rains, I don't care. It'll make no difference to me. I'll take that streetcar that's going uptown. I want to hear some funky Dixieland and so on. And uh, that was kind of the the... the Lyrics that I ended up throwing in with the the changes that I had been working on, uh, that I had shown Ted, and it sort of all came together there in New Orleans. Um, just you know, such a great music town. I was very inspired by. Uh, I still, I am every time I go there. I just I love this, the town and 
always great music and uh, get get a lot of good ideas. But uh, I think I had written uh, I, I had written Toulouse Street, which was also you know a song about New Orleans. So every time I went there, I would you know I would feel the the mojo because I was in in you know in that town. Uh, so you know that that basically was kind of how Blackwater was born and that, uh, talk about changing your life you know that was a uh, you know big one that was kind of our first kind of a, really a acoustic blues kind of song that uh you know was a popular song for us for, first number cool. one record for you guys i believe i mean and what's funny yeah. is it was yep. wasn't even intended right i mean it's one of those great stories where a little radio station near the uh, blackwater river i think in roanoke virginia they're playing it you know it catches on it catches on and lo and behold you know it wasn't like you guys put it out as a single it was really something that people took to first and and listeners reacted to which i think makes it even more organic and special yeah, those are the days when those kind of things could happen. Right. I think they still happen, but now they happen, you know, on YouTube. Right. Uh, <laughs> hey, Pat, not long after great, that, you then the song and is a great singer, and they people see him and get a lot of hits. Right. Well, not long after that, um, Stampede comes out, and then you're confronted with a big change in the band. Um, Tom comes down with a with an ailment, a situation where he can't perform anymore. And at the beginning of a tour, you guys are now one of the true road warrior bands. You're putting in a couple of hundred shows a year in some cases. And at the start of this tour for Stampede, Tom can't play. And so it, it, you've got a decision to make as one of the founding members of the band. What do you remember about that moment and, and decisions you had to make about the future of the band? Well, we kind of didn't know what we were going to do. Um, we we continued to play uh, a couple of shows with uh, just the lineup we had then. At that point, uh, Jeff Baxter had been uh, playing with us, um, playing steel and, and guitar and singing some backgrounds. So he was kind of a part-time uh, member at that point, and... Uh, when Tommy left, it was kind of Jeff and I on guitars. Uh, so, you know, myself, Tyran, and, and Jeff, uh, Keith Knutson back there on drums, and that was our vocal section. And so I sang pretty much everything for a while. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I said, God, I really need somebody else to, to sing some backgrounds and, uh, you know, wish we could get somebody Jeff said, well, I know this guy sings backgrounds with Steely Dan. Um, I could call him. I think he's a really great singer. He plays the piano, and that might be a good a good element, you know, to have because there's piano on so many Doobie songs. So uh, we called Mike McDonald, and uh, really Mike was came out like the next day. He says, I'll be out there, and... and uh, so we went and rehearsed a couple of days and uh, and hit the road again. Went back on the road and we just you know kept rehearsing every day. We would try to do you know rehearse during sound checks and stuff. And uh, Slovature uh, incorporated Mike into the into the lineup and 
And once we realized what a great singer he was, we started saying, hey, why don't you, you want to sing Take Me in Your Arms and maybe sing, you know, Long Train Running, we'll trade off or whatever. And so that was kind of the beginnings of things. And then, um, you know, a year later we we had uh, taken it to the streets, um, which Mike... Uh, uh, wrote and performed the the uh, the title track from that record, and and that was kind of a moment too, band. right? When you went Major. in the studio with Ted and and Mike had that song, that's sort of a moment in band history as well, too. When he first plays that for Ted Templeman, yeah, um, we were in recording a couple of my tracks, and I brought Mike in to play keyboards, and uh, Bobby Lakind, who had been one of our our roadies um, had developed into a great uh, percussionist, uh, sitting in with us from time to time, and so I, I I brought Bobby in to play conga drums and Mike in to play uh, piano on a couple of my songs, and we tracked um, a few I don't know two or three of my songs one day, and then uh, at the end of the day we're sitting around and talking to Ted, you know, what, where are we going to go from here? Do you have more songs? Uh, Tommy, at that point, had kind of dropped out. He said he didn't want to, he didn't want to work on the record, and he, he was just, he needed a, a break. So we're kind of panicked, what are we going to do? And uh, so I had spoke, I had heard a couple of Mike's songs. I thought they were really good, and uh, I suggested to Ted that maybe he check out Mike's songs and Ted was kind of resistant he didn't really think you know we should try bringing in another singer uh, that you know I should sing the songs and and move forward and uh, I convinced him that he should take a listen to, to Mike's songs because I, I really I thought Streets particularly I thought was really a great tune. He had uh, another song, Keeps You Running, that I really liked. So um, af- after that session we had done that day, I-, I convinced Ted to take a listen to Mike. Mike sat down at the piano and started playing, uh, taking it to the streets, and and that was it. Teddy was like, what? <laughs> Who, where did he, Where did this come from, you know? And uh, Mike just kind of blew his mind. So we went in, you know, a couple weeks later and started cutting Mike's songs, and and they were fabulous. They turned out really great. And uh, we just, we were nervous, of course, but we figured, you know, we had to take a shot. We didn't really have any choice. I didn't really have enough songs written to to do the record. And besides that, I personally felt that Mike's tunes were really great and i i was anxious to to get him on on uh, a doobie's record because i really thought he had some magic so it turns out he did and with that you the band you know enters kind of a new phase and and reinvents itself not the first time you do that and then you go on to you know obviously a whole sort of new era with with all new hit records and a new sound and and you're the you're the you know the anchor through it through it all i mean you're the guy that was there at the beginning and through that as well um that had to be interesting for you to to be through a major change like that 
Uh, it was very interesting. It was, you know, I felt fortunate to, you know, have the opportunity, to be honest with you, to, you know, keep playing and then to to have such great songwriters. Um, you know, Jeff was writing some tunes. Uh, Keith Knudsen was writing tunes. Uh, and then, of course, Mike was writing great songs. Um, and I just, you know, would try to adapt whatever I had to offer to... Uh, you know, in, incorporate my own ideas into their tunes, and uh, you know, I had I had played some R and B uh, as well, so I was you know felt pretty good about you know what I had to offer uh, in, in terms of what I could offer in, in Mike's tunes, um, and and it worked. You know, my parts uh, that I came up with worked in mm-hmm. his songs, and um, just again. Just kept having fun, you know. It's always fun to to be challenged and to you know come up with ideas that that work. Uh, not always didn't you know your ideas don't always work, but uh, most of the time they do. There they did. And, sure, uh, absolutely. You know, again, just felt fortunate to to be hanging in there with everybody. And Pat, then the band, then there's a hiatus. Things kind of come to a, a you know a semi close there in the early '80s, and there's a break, and then you all come back. I mean, there's this moment, number of years later, where everybody comes back together for a really great cause, and uh, you do this show at the Hollywood Bowl that I think sold out, second and only to the Beatles, right? And that had to be a moment too to realize just what you and your music still meant to people after you know after some years had gone by. What was that like to come back again with everybody and uh, play the benefit but see that there was another chapter yet to be written well i don't think we ever could have imagined that we would uh have come back and and reformed or i didn't really that wasn't my intention uh, but after we did those sh- we did a series of shows we did the the hollywood bowl and then we decided you know we had put so much into to uh getting things ready for that one concert that we thought, gosh, we should really take advantage of the fact that we have all the guys together and uh, go do some more shows and and uh, give some more money to some various charities. So we, I think we did not that many shows. I, I'm six or eight. So, yeah, shows I think it was about maybe, eight. But um, but it was you know we had a great time and it was fun to to have all those players. We had like I don't know. It was like 16 guys or something like that. Maybe not that many. A lot of guys, anyway. I think we had, let's see, one, two, three, four, four or five drummers, I think we had. Amazing. <laughs> and uh, five drummers, count, counting uh, Bobby on congas, Bobby Lakine. So, I mean, we really um, just had a great time uh, doing that. And then uh, coming out of, uh, t- again, uh, Ted Templeman uh, was around and, said, you know, you guys sound so good, um, and everybody seems to be having a good time. Would you ever think about throwing the original band together, uh, that, you know, the band that did Toulouse Streets and, and, uh, uh, and doing another record? And so uh, we thought about, you know, got together and talked, and everybody said, sure, that would be fun. So we... Did we did exactly that? We put that original band together and uh, did a record 
for capital, uh, Joe Smith, who had been over at Warner Brothers, uh, had uh, was at that point uh, the president of the Capitol Records, and he convinced us we should come over there and do the records. So we did a did a couple albums for Capitol, and then uh, just kept going. We kept you know touring and and writing, and you know we've done I don't know four or five albums I think. Um, since that time, we, we haven't felt the, the, that obligation to do, you know, an album every year. We just do, you know, get to get, you know, we write songs all the time, but, uh, you know, we kind of set a little time aside every few years and, and go in and do some recording and, uh, kind of makes it more fun and special. Um, so that's what we've been doing and we're still doing it. We're, uh, still working on some new new tracks right now so. which is great which is amazing and i guess that kind of brings us to our final moment pat and that's that you know this summer you know you're mounting in the springtime your own headlining tour and then a co-headline with santana for the summer um you know back you know i don't think the summer would be the same without a big doobie brothers tour it's become so much a part of people's lives what's it like for you to go out as in summer typically as you do in america and, and see those faces and you see the people singing along and just realize that you've you've written now for generations of people that bring their kids and their grandkids that's got to be pretty special being up there realizing that you've affected this many people for so long well for me um i like to play um and i feel like if there's folks out there that will will come and see us and you know are enthusiastic enough that um to, to come to the shows that uh, it, it still makes it worthwhile for for us to get out there and play. Um, I suspect if, if even if they weren't, you know, we we'd probably be doing gigs on some <laughs> level or other. But um, it's we've been able to you know keep it going and uh, still you know have have a core audience out there that comes to see us every year. Um, and we just we don't do as many shows as we used to. Uh, it just, you know, we just kind of decided that we want to have more fun and make it more special. So, um, you know, we do, you know, 70 to 90 shows a year. Which is, is a you lot. Know, pretty, pretty substantial yeah. without killing ourselves. Um, but uh, we, we love to play and we just keep, keep that part of the, keep it that part of it alive for us. And, uh, you know, we, our chops are, are good and uh, we still enjoy it every night you know it's just a lot of fun uh, the excitement's still there and I still get nervous <laughs> <laughs> um, but but um, you know it's still great to to and we and we keep coming up with ideas we did a couple shows at the Beacon Theater uh, did the Toulouse Street and the Captain and Me all the way through both both records, um, so that was kind of a fun little experiment, um, and like I said, now we're doing some newer, newer tunes, and that we who knows we might even end up, you know adding something to the set, you know. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, and you mentioned Bill Payne earlier. Again, the lineup you've got now along 
with uh, with you and Tom and John is really stellar. And folks get to enjoy Bill Payne as well, which is a real treat every night. That, that you give him a solo spot like that to me is always a really magical part of, of any Doobie Brothers set. So for fans listening, you do not want to miss these guys on the road. Two big tours, April as headliners and then summertime as co-headliners. Pat, I want to thank you so much for taking so much time to run through some moments uh, in your life. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Chris. Thanks for taking the time with me. Enjoyed it. Pat Simmons from the Doobie Brothers. That was such a fun conversation. Again, I'm a huge Doobie Brothers fan, a big Pat Simmons fan too, and I loved being able to get his perspective to juxtapose against Tom Johnson's perspective a couple of weeks ago. So it's going to do it for here on The Moment this week. I want to thank you for joining me. We have uh, one more show left in our 13-week season. Uh, next week, and it'll be Leif Garrett live with me taking your phone calls, which should be a very special show. But in the meantime, again, thank you for listening. Um, thank you to Pat Simmons, of course, and I will see you next week. I am Chris Epting. This has been The Moment. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.